there, and welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Hey, good morning, afternoon, and evening, people. Hope you're having a good day. So so this week, I recorded a new episode that I'll be releasing on the 28th, which is uh, next Friday. Uh, this was recorded with a former Miss Georgia, that's the country, not the state, um, her name is Anna Dulce and we connected uh, over Instagram she's a large following there and uh, she had a really interesting profile we got in touch we talked about doing the show and we recorded a very long and very interesting episode earlier this week so Anna now lives in Miami in Florida uh, she's a successful business and life coach uh, that has a strong focus on the restaurant business we, we talk so much about uh, her journey how she moved to the states and i just wanted to put a little teaser out there because it's definitely one of the best and most favorite uh, episodes i've done so far uh, so if you wanted to check out anna before the show on instagram and she has her own site anna dulce.com and that's a-n-n-a-d-o-l-c-e.com she has a very special offer to 1% Better Podcast listeners that you will have to uh, tune into the show to uh, to avail of, uh, but it'll definitely be worth your while because, as I said, it's it's such a really good conversation that we have, a lot of over and back uh, after the first 45 minutes or so. It is a long one, but uh, definitely one not to be missed. So look forward to that. On to this Monday's release, or Sunday night, Monday morning release. And it is part two of the John Wall interview where we go very deep into his career of becoming an entrepreneur. The first part was very much uh, leading up to this point. But uh, in this episode, John uh, talks about many areas around becoming an entrepreneur. He talks about being successful in that area, modestly successfully calls it himself. But he talks about being uh, an entrepreneur. We talk about John getting fired twice in, in nine months and, and learning a lot from that. We touch on risk management, his strategy and approach around that. He talks about picking what you want to be famous for, finding what your passion is. John reflects on his career. We touch on a number of areas uh, that I typically ask people like during the rapid fire questions and answers perspectives. We touch on focusing and trusting your gut facing fears losing a lot of things and winning things back favorite books lots lots more john does get very reflective in this second part but i believe it is uh, better than the first one but that's just my my opinion hopefully i can be approved right or wrong by uh, your feedback again thanks to john so much for his time it was a really good long form one that's why i broke it into two and i hope you uh, enjoy both and if you do let me know and as i said uh, check out anna dolce i will be putting up stuff about that over the coming days uh, before friday's release thanks guys have a great week to the point where you actually went out on your own maybe maybe talk yeah so um so after kent's i was with kent's for 10 years and i had two two jobs one for a year one for nine months and um you know there were kind of you know kent's like gigs only right. probably without the without the full i mean kent's was a was an interesting place to work yeah, and a lot of good things, a lot of tough things as well, not, a lot of not so good things, and it ended kind of badly. For at the, in '95, I left because the company had been in, and I would have examinership and changed hands, and there was a lot of turmoil and 
almost none of the work in Ireland was, was, was kind of remaining and everybody was either in the Middle East or Southeast Asia and that just didn't work for me at the time. So I worked for two different years with um, a year with a with a kind of a, 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 a you know a Kent's alumni kind of a I won't say who they were but because mm. um, I was fired out of both jobs. Um, Did that have anything to do with temper tantrums there? No, no, actually <laughs> neither. Uh, I never. I don't. I, I mean, I, I like. I, look, I, I lose my temper occasionally, but it's it'll be rare enough to yeah. be honest. It's not a, it's not a, it's not been a, a, a standout issue in my career. Mm-hmm. I suppose. Um, the losing the temper was with with my friend uh, that we used to call Amoeba, which yeah. was not very respectful because he we reckoned, at least my colleagues reckoned that he had a single celled brain, but. <laughs> But anyway, he he uh, he showed me who had the he showed me who was boss in time. Right. Um, no, I, I I mean I I think in those, both of those jobs, I really you know the culture in both of those places was just not a fit for me. Mm-hmm. I, I you know the first one was okay. I mean, I, in the sense that I, we were still living in Clonmel at the time, and I didn't move house or whatever. But the second one, I had actually moved house, which is how I ended up where I am now. Mm-hmm. Uh, which you know I'm happy about where I live right now. So kind of it was a you know in a sense that was that was a, a, an okay outcome or a good outcome. But I was fired out of that job. The first one I kind of I wouldn't say I was fully fired. I was kind of a half fired, but half wanted to leave. So, but the second one I was fired out of, and I had just sold my house in Clonmel. We'd moved here. We had a very young family. Um, my wife was pregnant with our fourth child. It was not a not an easy uh, experience to go through at all for mm-hmm. me or for her, for her in particular. But what I learned from that was whenever I hired somebody senior into a company, because I went into that company as a quite a senior hire, I was headhunted in. You know, and there was a there was actually a, I would argue a lack of integrity in the in the kind of package, and there was an attempted renegotiation after after I had sold my house and moved, which was a which was a kind of a lesson for me. But the the thing that I was always at pains with senior execs who joined me afterwards was to say, look, I need you to be sure. You you know, you need to buy into the fact that you and I will work together and it might not work out. And it might mm-hmm. be because I'm bad or you're bad or either of us are bad, but just because it just sometimes mm-hmm. just doesn't work out. And we are a startup and I don't know if we're going to succeed. And so I probably put off more people joining us, mm. good people, but I just didn't want to have it on my conscience mm-hmm. because I believe with a startup in particular, you know, it's a very risky, it is risky. Mm, I mean, that's just like, I'm okay with risk. I'm not that okay with risk. I mean, I'd be quite, you know, judicious about mm-hmm. looking at and analyzing and what if this and what if that, and then yeah. and I'm ready, I take my risk. I think most entrepreneurs are like that, actually. They're kind of, you know, enlightened risk takers. The two things I'd say about entrepreneurs that are, first of all, they're enlightened risk takers, or they should be, and if they're not, they don't remain entrepreneurs very long. Mm. And the second thing is... Successful ones, Successful ones, yeah. (laughs) The successful ones, and some are more... I mean, I'm no more than a moderately successful entrepreneur, but, you know, I did start and sell a business to a global company, so... Mm -hmm. 
you know, and I did start some businesses within Kent, some new divisions, and you know, so I, that was kind of more entrepreneurship than mm. entrepreneurship right. to be kind of slightly in about it. But, um, but the second thing is, the second thing that I would say about entrepreneurs is that they make better use. It's not that they make less mistakes. I just think they make better use of their mistakes. They learn more from their mistakes and more quickly, you know. Um, Do you think you're our entrepreneurs that way by the grace of God or is it something that they learn over time to do they all have that always have that maybe itch that they want to scratch and take it or is it something that through experience you say right this is something I think I can do or a bit of both I think there's I think there's a bit of both because I think entrepreneurs I think every entrepreneur that there is good bad and indifferent we are let's be honest about it arrogant (laughs) self-absorbed probably quite selfish when you say we now you're not including me here I'm not an entrepreneur no we <laughs> we, as, we as entrepreneurs I mean we the class of if there okay. is such a thing as a class of entrepreneurs and I, and I like I protest I'm only a you know a moderately uh, successful one but uh, deluded probably a lot of things that aren't maybe that's attractive uh, elements of the parts of the human condition but deluded to the extent that we think we can do something better than everybody else or anybody else or whatever and that's what so there's a there's a kind of an instinct for just you know doing something Mm. um which drives you to good things and bad let's be honest about it but i think a lot of the other stuff i mean okay i I don't i don't know that there is such a thing as somebody who's born an entrepreneur i'm not really sure i think when i think you see a lot more entrepreneurs coming out of entrepreneurial families you Mm. see a lot of entrepreneurs coming out of I mean, my father was a policeman, and my mother had been a civil ser- a public servant back mm. in her civil servant back in her day. Uh, retired because of the marriage bar, which was a delightful thing back in the in the fifties. But um, we wouldn't have been entrepreneurial. But her father, my mother's, my grandfather, and my mother's side was was entrepreneurial. He bought a farm. I don't know how he pulled together the money enough mm. to buy a farm, but he bought a farm in West Cork and. You know, was was kind of a cut above, and I didn't. He was. I was very young when he died, but you know, just listened to stories about him. But that, I'd never been. I didn't know that until quite recently. You mm. know, I always assumed that he, the farm had just been right. given to him by by his father, which was not the case actually. Mm. Um, but I think I know in my case, uh, a, a lot of what I, I can't remember. This, what was the second part of the question? I think it was more about are you born or is it something that you develop into over time and then I think we said it was you know maybe yeah so so I I think the desire mm. is probably formed quite early on okay um, but I think the the kind of oh, I think the second bit was learning what I, what did I say about entrepreneurs I said two things one was that. One of them was, and I think that's the point we were talking about, was that they make better use of their mistakes. Mm-hmm. Enlightened risk takers yeah. better, make better use of their mistakes, learn quicker of their mistakes, not that they make less. So I don't know if they're really, you know, mm-hmm. as a, I'm not a soci- sociologist or mm-hmm. I don't know if they, even that's a thing. I, I can't tell you if there really is a class of people or a kind of a, no, a whatever. I, but I guess it's just interesting from my perspective that a lot of the people I'm lining up to talk to over the next while may have gone down the same path as you and mm. obviously it'll be interesting 
this, there's no right or wrong answer, but it'll yeah. just be interesting different perspectives. I suppose the different views. So the making better use of your mistakes, I'm not sure that's necessarily an entrepreneurial thing. I think you learn stuff on the journey. I mean, I've learned enough. I, I actually feel I'm getting ready to go again. So I sold my business yeah. almost two years ago to the day. And I'm just coming out of a non-compete. Uh, and I'm... You know, looking at what's next, and mm -hmm. looking at uh, I have a bit more leeway than the last time because the last time I, I needed to earn money real quick because I had no income. I'd just been fired for the second time in nine months. You know, but right. this time it's different because I obviously have a little bit of financial ballast and I have less of a. Uh, I'm older. I'm twenty years older, which is you know there's good and bad in that because you have a different type of energy in your fifties, mm. but also a lot wiser and. You know, the years really do help you in business. You know, it's about the only area in life that, you know, you could say it, it definitely improves you because, mm. you know, I think the energy thing is important and, and I, I, I suppose I remains to be, that remains to be tested in my, in my whatever mm. it is I decide to do next. And I'm looking at a bunch of different things, but the learning from your mistakes thing, I think is hugely important. Um, I think it's important not to get consumed by your mistakes, but it's also important to digest your mistakes. And a lot of people I see, a lot of people say to me, but geez, you're very hard on yourself. And I mm. say, well, look, if I don't kind of process my learning, how, you know, there's no value in that mistake if I don't process the learning from it. Mm -hmm. Now, you also need to make sure you're not bogged down in that mistake yeah. because then you're it's stultifying you're and, like, you know um, and, and I'd have a certain amount that'd be a bit of a, an issue for me you know as a kind of regret over in, in relation to processing mistakes do you almost have like a process to process them or do you just how do you reflect on them is it something that is you need to go off and think about it for a period of time and come up with things you could have done differently or do you just I Sometimes I do a formal um, kind of a post-mortem. A lessons learned type thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I, I, you know, I, I walk the dog. I I'm go fishing. for a two-mile walk every morning. Mm -hmm. The funny thing is when I'm fishing, I fly fish, so I'm actually never thinking about anything right. except the next cast, which a lot of people say that to me about fishing, that, you know, do you process your learning? I don't actually think about anything, only there's a salmon or a trout or whatever and I'm not presenting the fly right and it's actually kind of a metronomic fly fishing in particular it's kind of a metronomic quality but it's, it's almost kind of like a, meditation. like meditation yeah. you know and, yeah, and it absolutely. empties my mind and I actually just feel I don't think about anything really mm. um, but uh, you know I walk uh, you know I walk the dog and I, I do a bit of thinking on my walks and I just mm. think about I did right and I did wrong and sometimes a bit, I do a bit too much of it but mm. Um, I I believe actually that thinking, spending time with nothing but your thoughts is a really valuable mm. habit. Now you can do too much of it yeah. and too little of it. You have to kind of right size it and all that. But I believe there's and it, and it's getting more and more difficult mm. because I have a social media account and I spend far too much time. And in fact, one of my New Year's resolutions is to stop uh, not completely stop mm. because you know I have you know cousins in England that I like yeah. to see what's going on and you know it's a way of you know kind of easily keeping in touch with what's going on but um, in the modern in the in the world we live in you can't go into uh, I was in Mahan Point today meeting somebody for a, 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 
a business lunch you would you, you could call or something I hadn't seen for a while and we were swapping stories about you know buying and selling companies and mm. you know developing business and whatnot and actually the noise out in the music everywhere and I like my music but you know just there's noise everywhere there's 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 physical noise there's emotional noise there's there's you know electronic noise no matter where you look there's something bombarding you and I yeah. actually think that and so it's harder because the culture of the day is mm. you know that you need to be constantly stimulated with all these things mm. and actually when you're when you're in that it's very difficult to actually take time out mm. and deliberately think and I think and I believe myself that mm. if you don't deliberately think mm. you know or think with some deliberation is maybe a better way of putting it you are never going to come up with any significant kind of innovation or you know different approach to what you've been doing or whatever and I, I just I just think there's far too little I believe there's far too mm. little thinking going on it's interesting meditation is something I'm very passionate about and talk a lot about to, to you know, people at work and, um, and and another thing around being productive and time to think I read a book not so long ago called Deep Work and it kind of talks about identifying blocks in your day where you actually have no distractions and you can go deep into that piece of work mm. it can be thinking a lot of these thought leaders say that they set themselves an hour a day nine to ten or midnight or you know later more early to actually think and then other parts of the day if thoughts are coming in they try and bat them away because it, their, their time to think is from the, the allocated slot every day when, when they're most creative or whatever and it just makes them more productive and rather than getting lost in your thoughts numerous times a day it can slow down your productivity but there's almost like a a set time when you would actually do that yeah I mean apparently Einstein had a thinking chair Mm. Um, and he he said is alleged to have said or I read somewhere that he said he might have said it at all but (laughs) I I went to the lab in the morning I went to the um, the lake in the afternoon it was when I was on the lake I thought of EMC, E equals MC squared yeah. um, and a lot of people listen to that and say well you should just go to the lake all the time but of course mm-hmm. he had to go to the lab to get his mind processed you know to, to, to get yeah. I, I think there's an awful sort of there's a there's a I, I just find this you know you know, and I was thinking, obviously, when I when we were we talked about doing this interview, I was mm-hmm. thinking, oh, you know, what I'm going to say, what have I, what have I got to say, what, uh, what do I want to get across? And I, I didn't really, I didn't really form any yeah. um, kind of plan for this, as it turned out. But one of the things that I thought about was that, you know, this business of uh, of thinking and planning and imagining a different future and so on that it is really getting more and more and more difficult because I actually think an awful lot of modern living is just very you know lends itself to shallowness mm-hmm. um, the internet in particular and I'm, yeah. I'm as guilty of this as anybody but you know you're reading this you know it's the, the, the phrase echo chamber has become very popular recently but you know it's a real problem I mean an awful lot of what you read is just mindless, mm-hmm. you know, drivel, you mm. know, not edited, not reviewed, yeah. 
you know, years ago you'd read a paper and there was a structure to the paper in the sense that there was an editor and a sub-editor and, a, mm. you know, there was a hierarchy. And I know that maybe resulted in a... But, but there was a quality yeah. to the written word back in the day that at least you could kind of rely on a base level of quality. Whereas nowadays, there's so much of this, you know, nonsense around that I just... You know, I looked at a... I looked at a Productivity technology a couple of years ago, a startup that I was working on with somebody never, never, we never got it off the ground. But there was a debate in in the press at the time about the some guy wrote a book called The Shallows, what the internet is doing to our, you know, does the internet make us dumber? Does the internet make us smarter? Mm -hmm. And I would be very much of the view that in the round, Mm -hmm. the internet for all the fantastic you know, availability of resources, of information and so on, the immediate access to dictionaries and Wikipedias and all that, and data and lots of it. But for all that, for the most part, it makes people more shallow and uh, less likely to think mm. about stuff, you know. Mm. I, yeah, Have you, you know the book... Um it's called Thinking Fast and Slow. Have you yeah. read that book? And the kind of type system one and system two brain. Yeah, I haven't it. read it, no. It's good, but but again, I think with that, the system one brain is the the lazy one where you just mm. take the first answer that comes into your head because it doesn't involve you to think. That, that stands out to me, especially when you're... You no longer actually think about somebody... You might be in conversation and you're, you're trying to remember something you just go to the internet to remember it mm. rather than spend two minutes actually, to actually you know, that's dig a that really out. Good point. That part and of your yeah. brain is actually becoming dormant almost. Yeah, that, that that's recall. a good point actually. Anyway, we'll <laughs> so we keep going. We? I think we picked up a, a lot of good things. Um, I would say we're, you're, you're, you're kind of, I guess, starting the, the, your first major startup. I think that's where we had... Uh, yeah, okay. So that was 97 and it was probably more in despair than in, in enlightenment that I that I did it but you know I, I had wanted to yeah um, I remember coming home from the Middle East you know when I was my er, very early years in Kent and thinking you know what I could do something I'd like to do something and mm. I don't know what it is but I would you know I'd like to be my own boss so that kind of arrogance was there from evident from a very early stage so eventually, anyway, I got fired enough times that I started and I really didn't understand an awful lot about... I, I knew quite a bit about management, a lot of good business skills from my time in Kent. Very, All kind of on-the-job stuff, was it? Yeah, yeah. I had some amount of training. I did, an, I did an, an open university module called the Effective Manager. You know, there was a, there was a, there was a HR director in Kent at the time who was, was anxious for management training and actually there was a guy who took over... In, in, in more after Kent's got into trouble there was a there was a Hugh O'Donnell was the CEO I didn't know I don't know him I've met him once or twice but I don't know him really well but mm. what always impressed me about him was he was quite a young man when he took on the job but he he put all of Kent's frontline guys and, and up and coming guys through you know spent a lot of money I'd imagine through MBAs and MBSs and M, M something or mm-hmm. you know a lot of formal management training and it really seemed to, I thought it was a terrifically courageous thing because the company was you know probably hadn't two brass farthings to rub together mm. you could say at the time but he did that and I now, but in my time there was much less of it 
But there was a good culture of management, of hard-nosed kind of management. A lot of tradesmen who weren't university educated, but they'd learned how to project management from Bechtel. Somebody came in from Bechtel, who were the kind of probably kings of project management right. in the 60s and 70s, and gave Kent the systems and the... And there was a very simple, you know, project management system there called the CCS, the cost control system, which was basically a, a work breakdown structure, and mm. it was almost like a religion, you know. Mm. So I had a lot of that stuff, and and I was lucky. I would say I was lucky, you know. I would acknowledge I was lucky that in '97 the Celtic Tiger hadn't really started yet. Mm. It had started, but it wasn't evident, and a lot of the kind of froth that came was was um, was kind of later. So I got a bit of a head start, and my brothers came in with me, and we, you know, we managed somehow or another to get we had about twenty five people within mm. a couple of years. There was only a few of us, but then we hired a few graduates, and then got a few more jobs, and we had, you know, picked up work around the place, and just we'd got one good guy on the project, and we get another good guy, and then we'd get a graduate in, and he or she would be trained. We actually had. I don't need to kind of go the he or she uh, thing because we actually had probably more than half of our workforce was female as it as it kind of went on over the years. Now, mm. You know, a lot of them were moved into kind of supervisory and management positions and I think we were pretty good from... I was always, you know, reasonably proud of that, that, you know, we didn't have... I was talking to a classmate of mine, a college classmate of mine recently and she said, I said, I don't know how it happened and she said to me, well, it was just because you didn't have that unconscious bias. Mm. She talked about her time in the financial services industry and finding, going on a project as an IT-related project manager, to find not a woman in sight, and mm. how she would systematically go about changing that over the over the year that followed. And mm. but uh, So we had a good mix, and, you know, a lot of graduates, a lot of young, you know, kind of one, two-year experience, but we were good at putting a kind of a structure, a project structure, and project management it lends itself to that because you can have one senior person and mm. more junior people and yeah we we you know we won some business and you know pivoted a number of times I wouldn't have known that's what it was at the time mm. but it clearly did we were reasonably strategic I think from from the outset even though I, again I probably wouldn't have understood it but I did a lot of reading did you do your Typical three and five year plans and all of that. Yeah, stuff we did a lot of that stuff. Um, sometimes they worked and sometimes they didn't. Mm. Um, I probably was a bit too much of an engineer with it, mm. in that I kind of thought if you make the plan, well, the plan will be fine because it'll always work. But you know, in business, you're not dealing with moving mm. boxes or lines of code or whatever it is that you do. You're dealing with people, and of course, people are not as you know. It's not a linear not um, kind of a thing. Mm. No, and, I, and it never will be, I and I hope Honest. it never will be. And a lot Start. of the kind of, I mean, at the risk of sounding like one of those guys who said, I can only ever imagine there being two computers in the world, or six, or oh, whatever. Yeah. Mm. I don't uh, I don't think anyone would be listening to my quotes, but um, I just, uh, you know, I, I'm not convinced at all about just the extent to which artificial intelligence will take over from the mm. human condition. I just... It's an I area that I'm massively interested in, and I'd love to have a. Yeah. I'm, I'm one of the future guests. I'm trying to figure out who we could talk to because yeah, yeah. it's um, some of the stories that uh, from listening to other podcasts that I've picked up on around the ethics of artificial intelligence mm. is fascinating. Uh, yeah, the example that I've used a few times is it, it, um, a self-driving car. 
having ethical code into it that if it's driving down the road and um, uh, an old lady walks out in front of the car mm. does it make the decision to turn when turning would drive into a, a, a like a group of, a group of kids playing yeah. or staying and t- you know hit the old lady Taking so chance, it's like know. little examples like that that you just wow and, and how yeah. AI you have to it's almost selecting a level of ethical percentage on on the car that you're driving an so acceptable could, level of carnage yeah so anyway yeah. I don't want to get off that topic on that but it, um, it is an interesting fascinating topic yeah but, but so go, to, just to kind of go back and kind of the story of we, we started off yeah. as Lekin we changed the GXP systems we tried to be a software company software product company that failed we nearly lost the business in 2004 I had a very difficult very very difficult time for me because I had to let a lot of people go mm. um, and I'd worked really hard to put that engineering team together we still had our services business which I'd probably neglected but we then became you know a fairly mainstream compliance and validation company um, which then became you know grow- once we focused on that and just that and you knew what your focus area was and that took you a long time to yeah it took a while it did actually took a long time now we we had tried to like I knew the systems integration business was very difficult to find a unique selling point in because mm. It just is, and I, I think you know you need to be big, fast, or mm. you need to get out of it. Uh, you need to be big, fast, if you like, or you need to be comfortable being small. And I was never comfortable being small. <clears throat> I always had delusions of uh, world domination. I think uh, I heard Bono saying that one time, but um, he obviously got there. He got there, yeah. yeah. Which uh, I am still a work in progress, you know. But so we. Started as a systems integrator, changed then to try to do a bit more kind of manufacturing data, which was always a gap. A gap. I still think there's a gap there, actually, even to this day. Mm-hmm. But, you know, found that that was just... We tried to be a software company then. Um, we we tried... We, we did actually become a software company. We just didn't sell enough for it to stay in business, you know. Right, we had yeah. a software product that we had sold to a couple of... Three different multinationals and had promised, but... I made a lot of mistakes and I didn't really know what I was getting into. I should have spent a lot more of my time selling. I can say that now. Mm. It's a mistake an awful lot of tech companies make. Um, so spend just the, the advice point there is what if you're getting into a software that you're not trying to, to sell it um, aggressively enough or trying to get yeah, it perfect? I, or? I, yes, get, try, trying to get it perfect. Now, we did screw it up as well. And, you know, you, you, you can you can do, do the not trying to get it perfect thing. It's a feature, you not go a too far sort of thing, is it? Yeah, like, yeah so, yeah. you know, our first release was very buggy and we had to go back and, you know, we spent a lot of money fixing. Mm. You know, the one, first thing I learned is you're a systems integrator. Is, does not equate to your software product company. It's a completely different... I wouldn't have understood at all the difference mm. between them. And a lot of so- systems integration companies make have made that mistake down through the years and continue to make that mistake. They think, gosh, how hard can it be? Mm. It's completely different, especially with enterprise software. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. Um, the second thing is you have to have the right people mm. to do that, which is kind of an extension of the first point. The third thing is... As in to the developers or the... The, the, the architects, architects and the developers. The, the architects. Whole, the whole thing really. Like which, is a, which is the thing that I see missing from an awful lot of tech. Really? Is a good architecture. Okay. Because if you have good architecture, an awful lot of the rest of the stuff will follow. But if you have a product being led by uh, coders, 
mm. you know product management is missing product design is mm. missing mm. architecture you know how scalable and or interoperable and easy all to that integrate stuff, and stuff. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and you now the world has changed a lot in that, you know, cloud has kind of changed the argument to some extent, but it's still the same principle is there. Like, mm. you really need, if you're going to grow rapidly, you need to have had very good engineering, very good architecture. And very, you know, arch- architecture is part of engineering in my mm-hmm. kind of description. But, yeah. um, and, and the thing is, you either need to raise a lot of money or you need to sell a lot. Mm. Kind of, if you have a lot of money raised... And I think there's an argument for doing both anyway. Mm. And I should have spent more time in the States selling what we had to the head, headquarters. Mm. And I think we had something that was ahead of its time to some extent. But look, at the end of the day, you miss by an inch or a mile. It doesn't matter. I had to close it down. I learned a lot from it. Just on the sales part, and it's something I suppose that we didn't really touch on through your career. Where did you become a sales guy? Or That's a good question. Uh, so I, when I when I came back from from Holland to Ireland, I never really kind of co- covered that piece from from kind of mid eighty nine to ninety mid ninety two. That would have been I would have, would, have, would have would have worked a lot in kind of general management. The business business development was very much part of. It. I ran one of the divisions. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a tech services division. We did a lot of commissioning and maintenance and, you know, the kind of high-tech end of the stuff insofar as Kent's were doing high-tech at the time. Mm-hmm. But it would have been relatively high-tech building maintenance system, building management systems and, you know, the distributed control systems and data management systems in refineries and, you know, those kind of industrial plants mm-hmm. I talked about. Um, we sold people, we sold manners, we, you know, sold services. I... Mm-hmm spent a lot of my time putting together bids I worked kind of in what we would have called marketing even though it wasn't really marketing business development is what it would have been called in Kent's but it was really you know preparing bids doing mm-hmm. the pre-sales you know stuff all that, that kind of stuff yeah. um, I learned a lot from that I, I don't know how good I was at it really uh, there but and I, I still don't know how good I am at it I mean I wouldn't be naturally drawn to it but typically when I'd make a sale I don't make that many sales but when I do make a sale it tends to be a very sticky one so I'd go into more detail on a sale than a lot of sort of typical sales guys would and so therefore it tends to last longer but I kind of you know do less of them Mm. Um, do you get a buzz out of doing that was there a kind of an Yes, yes and no. I suppose I I am at heart you know at heart that's the wrong phrase now but I am an introvert Mm -hmm. I just covered up well you know, uh, and not a, you know, very. I know, yeah, yeah. I'm not a very extreme introvert by any stretch, but I'm definitely more comfortable on the mm-hmm. bank of a river or walking or on my own, you know, than than I am. I'm well able to function with people, you know. Yeah, Obviously, yeah. I am. Otherwise, I wouldn't have built a business. But, mm-hmm. um, and I think big learning for me though, actually, is whenever my next time out, I'll be spending a lot, a lot more time out front, you know. Right. Um, a lot more time out front because. I'd have the confidence now to delegate that I wouldn't have had before, mm. you know, and I yeah. think that's an important kind of point for me. But really, I remember somebody saying to me once, you know, business is all about sales. And I remember thinking, you know, it's not all about sales, but actually I kind of agree with them, in, even though I don't agree with them. And I know that sounds vaguely mm. ridiculous, but the point is, if you don't have business, you don't have a business. Mm-hmm. You can have all the 
machinery and the people and the whatever it is required to deliver a delightful customer experience, whether it's a product or a service or whatever it is you're doing. But if you don't have an order book, you don't have a business. Mm. Because if you don't have an order book, you have to raise money. You raise money, you're not really working on the business, you're working on raising money. Um, and really, you know, I think there's a place for raising money. There's certain times when you, when you need to do that. Some businesses more so than others. I mean, if you're a biotech startup, you absolutely have to have goo gobs of money. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're never going to get your product through clinical trials yeah. or to the lab or whatever it is. But but if you don't have business, you don't have a business. It's kind of a, um, <clears throat> it's a kind of an obvious enough thing. I can say that now. I wouldn't mm-hmm. have seen that at all back in my early days. Mm. Um, cool. So that was a sales piece. Um, so that's a sales piece. Good yeah. to, to know because it's just an add another string to your bow, I guess, that yeah. uh, you've developed. <clears throat> uh, I'll bring you back up to the point where I rudely interrupted you to bring you back in time. No We're on our kind of back to the future <clears throat> kind of uh, what's the, the flux capacitor is bringing us forward and back in time here at the moment. But uh, I think you were up to the point where around 2004, I think you said, the business was. You found your niche area, maybe. We finally, you know, I suppose. I suppose 2004, most of 2004, we spent recovering from, you know, we really were very close to going out of business and I had to mm. schedule creditors and schedule with the revenue and oh, hide for a year and hope for that we'd still be in business. Yeah. But I remember at the time making a very conscious decision because we were in such dire straits to say, okay, and here's a 1%. This is more than a 1%. This is like for business, this is a 100% or okay. a 1000 percenter. If you ask me, mm-hmm. so many businesses I see don't pick what they want to be famous for. Like every business should have a strategy. Now the strategy can be wrong, and you know it can be out of date, and can be passed out by others, and all those things happen. Mm-hmm. But I would say to anybody, it first of all, it can take you a while before you know what it is, mm-hmm. and that's okay. You might have to keep your hand into different things, but. Any business that's led by a so-called sales-led CEO, and I, I'm, I'm allergic to the term, I'm much more fond of a, a market-led CEO, meaning, and what I mean by the difference between those two is, if you're led by a sales-led CEO, led is the wrong word, but if you're run by a sales-led CEO, you'll mm-hmm. find, you know, you'll wake up three years' time and you'll have 11 different lines of business and you won't be making a profit then because the sales-led CEO doesn't want to let go of any opportunity, just wants the revenue. Mm-hmm. Throw it over the fence into the factory, whether it's a, a real factory or, or a, mm-hmm. a virtual factory, doesn't matter, and let them figure out how to make it, whatever it is that he or she sold. More likely to be a he because the male ego is a more is more um, likely to end up in that kind of, a, mm-hmm. you know, indisciplined... Um, I think sales-led CEOs are a disaster. You know, yeah. they can be a disaster. They are a disaster. I, I think a market-led CEO, on the other hand, would be somebody who says, "Look, what resources do we have? What are we good at? What does the market need? Where, you know, where are the three areas? That, which one of them can we make a bet on?" Mm. And you get, and that's business strategy. It's about choosing what can we bet the farm on here, mm. because it's kind of self-evident that. You can't be good, really good, at lots of things. Mm-hmm. You can only be really good at a small number of things. In fact, arguably, you can only excel at one thing. Mm-hmm. Now, the trick is in making sure that you excel at the thing 
that's actually very relevant in some market or growing market or whatever. Mm. Um, <clears throat> you know, there's a lot of learning thought about, you know, Warren Buffett, probably the most famous investor of all, or one of them anyway, mm-hmm. would say the market is everything. Um, Andy Ratliff, a guy I saw in Stanford uh, in 2009, one of the most impressive speakers I've ever seen, you know, his phrase was something like, the market is the single biggest determinant of success in a startup. Uh, you know, a good, a shitty product in a good market beats a good product the other way around. Market, anyway. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, every time, and Warren Buffett would say, if you're in a leaky ship, instead of fixing the holes, your time would be better spent finding a ship that isn't leaky okay. and let the one that's leaky sink to the bottom of the sea. Mm. Um, so... No, to be fair, it takes time. It can take yeah. you time before you actually know what, what you know, t- especially when you... I mean, the problem with being a CEO of a startup is it's your first time being a CEO. There's no school you can go to that's mm. a school for CEOs. Yeah. I mean, you can have an MBA, but a lot of what you learn in MBA school is about, you know, being a, an mm. executive in a, in a multinational, which is a, a perfectly worthy <clears throat> way to spend your life, but it's a different mm. type of a learning, you know? It's interesting. Just one point, one of the podcast that I listen to all the time a guy called Tim Ferriss he's serial entrepreneur yeah. but his take was instead of going to MBA school he took out a loan for 120 grand and tried to set up his own business knowing that he could afford to lose the 120 grand but by doing it he would learn all the skills of yeah. an MBA pretty much on the job now this guy's a multi-millionaire yeah and I think I think I, look I would have a kind of a mixed view on those kind of brave pronouncements you know right. um, you know in the sense that like I'd hear a lot of startup guys. You know, I heard one of the guys from Trade Signals. Uh, you know the base camp. Oh yes, yeah. And not oh. Trade Signals. Sorry, not Trade Signals. Um, base camp is um, twelve. Base camp was the it's the software yeah, it's tools a, like productivity tools. Yeah, isn't it? it's like, a pro- project management. Um, it's not Trello because I use Trello, but. Uh, I think I know the one. You're no, anyway, about. I can't remember. The, yeah. One of the founders of that business, and I'm, I, the, the the sort of name Basecamp is the product. I can't remember the name of the company. Mm. Um, trade See, that's, that's why different. that's when the internet comes in handy, and we can check it. We yeah. don't have to think about those things. Like so, so, but um, no, Trade Signals was a different company. They were in colleague and interesting early stage, early one of the early web companies in Ireland. Um, can continue and so what did the guy say that I was remembering he said you know if you're doing a startup you should take all your MBO, MBA stuff and throw it in the bin and I, like it kind of annoys me to some extent when I hear people I say look there's a phase of your life when you're doing a startup and there's a phase of your life when you're scaling when you're no longer a startup and you're trying to scale your business and mm. when you're trying to scale your business a lot of what you, I don't have an MBA so what do I know but mm. a lot of what you learn at MBA school is about when your business is big or, or on the way to being big and I think there's perfectly you know valid learning and all that I don't think MBA programs up to recently have been good at teaching entrepreneurship because I think it's a very very different or startup mm. you know being a CEO of a startup is a completely different job to being a CEO of a scaling or a large company Mm -hmm. they're just you're not comparing like with like and you shouldn't go to MBA school if you want to be doing startups all the time so I'd say that just it's the wrong kind of medicine if you know what I mean Mm -hmm. Um, but 
Why are we talking about this? <laughs> I think we're talking about it <clears throat> because you were we were talking about your the latter stages of the company when you found where you want to be, and I think. Oh, I was uh, talking about why it's so important for a company to be really good at one thing. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. and it, it can take you a while to find it. Mm-hmm. And I believe absolutely that every company should try to think about what, you know, yeah. what am I going to make a fortune? What am I going to be famous for having done? And why does that make sense? Um, and... Uh, and you know if you, if you just if you if you're capable of thinking that through in a logical thoughtful reflective you know and coming back to the logic over and over again of it i think you have a chance of actually doing because look you know my point is it is self-evident that you can only be excellent at a small number of things mm-hmm. and if you're a small company or a startup in particular or some, any kind of a even even very large companies even the the really successful large companies they actually don't do that many things. Mm. They do a small number of things really well. I mean, the most famous of them all, of course, is, dare I say it in your presence, but Apple. They do a relatively, like when Jobs came back into that, mm-hmm. he cut loads of products and focused and yeah. and has a... It's his why. Have you ever read the book Starting With Why by Simon Sinek? No. It's, again, around the vision. And there's the, the why, the how, and the, the what, or the why. It, he has this golden circle, mm. and it goes back to the why statement. Why do you exist, and for you to have a, a connection with your limbic system or your emotional connection. So I think in Apple's case, they wanted to make it into the universe and change the status quo, and people can relate to that. And once they had their why, figuring out their how and their what is easier. Very interesting TED Talk, good, good read. Um, something I've used in setting up teams and uh, how to actually figure out what your purpose is as well. So, so yeah. I think that's kind of similar to what you're basically saying. It can be just, it, it can be what can inspire people to work for you and what you want to work towards. Well, if you look at the, you know, the staggering success that Dell had in the, in the 90s, it was a very simple concept mm-hmm. executed, you know, beautifully. Apple okay, it was a slightly more involved concept in the sense that they were probably breaking new ground a bit more than Dell was in the 90s. I still am a big, admir- a big, big admirer of what Dell did. You know, what EMC did prior to the merger of EMC was actually, you know, a, a top-drawer uh, practitioner in a particular area were like 18 months ahead of the competition. But, you know, it was a very... Uh, it was a very straightforward proposition... As far as I understand it, anyway, mm-hmm. and so if that's the case for big companies, why do you, as a small company, think you, Mister Sales led CEO, why do you think that you're going to be able to be good at eleven different things? Yeah. It just doesn't make any sense. Make it more complicated. You, for you're going to be ordinary at eleven things. Is what you're going to be, mm. and you're going to put a whole lot of stress on your production team, whatever it is they do, whether it's you know farming or you know cloud computing it doesn't matter mm-hmm. um, my advice the, 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 that, that'd be you know my 1% my 10% my 100% my whatever percent you like mm-hmm. is pick something that you're going to be really really good at 
that's very relevant to the market. Now, that sounds easier to do than it actually is because you need to know your market. And if you don't know your market, you need to learn your market. You need to go talk to your customers and figure out what they want. And you need to be mindful of the, you know, famous um, Henry Ford quote about if I asked my customers what they wanted, that they'd, they'd, they'd say uh, a faster horse, you know. And I know these things can be quoted out of context. I and, I, you know, I, I think there's a point there in what he's saying that there has to be room for innovation. But ultimately... Any company that breaks free of smallness mm. has usually done so because, and yeah. has almost always done so because there's they hit upon something with a reaction or design that the market really, really wants, mm. and then they master how to be good at it. And you know, um, and 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 I know it's kind of an iterative thing or catch mm. or whatever phrase you want to use, but that. So anyway, look, I mean, there's yeah. my there's that's true. The one thing that would jump into mind, uh, I've never done it, but um, from a startup or entrepreneur perspective, but would would a big mistake by entrepreneurs be them trying to develop a business around something that they're absolutely passionate about? Because they're passionate about it, they necessarily get lost in the thinking this yeah. is going to be big, as opposed to, look, I don't really give a shit about this product, but I think the market wants it so I'm going to milk it and do it well I kind of I kind of feel that there's a little bit of both I mean I, you know I, I mean I understand the question and I'm and I'm kind of a bit equivocal on the answer in the sense that I think that you need some basic mastery of whatever it is you know most entrepreneurs start because they've got a good mastery of something mm-hmm. and pretty quickly they find out whether the something that they do is relevant to the market or not and the good ones figure out how to reconfigure the something into something maybe slightly different that mm. people actually want to buy in bulk and that's the kind of so so in a sense mm. you kind of have to start with the something and you know iterate or whatever you very rarely see somebody saying look I actually think you know it would be great like I don't know I know what artificial intelligence is mm. I'm not going to be in artificial intelligence because I don't know enough about it. I really yeah. don't have any feel for it, you know? Mm. Uh, and so I could be with somebody who'd be completely bullshitting me and I just wouldn't know. And, you know, I could lose six months or a year or whatever. And, mm. uh, but maybe... So I, I do yeah. think... I do think... Uh, I, like, while I'm a, an advocate of the market-led CEO... I'm, I'm, I'm really what I mean by that is I like somebody who knows a lot about the market that they're serving and then has the tech I and mean, we're talking about tech here anyway right mm-hmm. then has the tech ability if you like to say I need two of those guys and three of those gals and those other folk mm-hmm. there and put them together and I know they'll be able to, and I know I know enough about this stuff and I have co- enough confidence in my team that we'll be able to build what it is mm-hmm. and but I'm gonna like I would never have understood that the kind of discipline of product management back in the day mm. but actually it's a very logical and ordered way like you hear all these stories about startups all the time you hear the story about NetApp you know very successful company that whenever they started off looking for venture capital they couldn't no, nobody knew who they were they mm. couldn't raise it they raised a smaller amount of money they had 20 features they said well you know we have lesser amount of money so we need to sell more quickly than we had planned to do and we need to put less features into it because we don't have the money mm. and um, so they got a lesser amount of money they got the product to market a year earlier and they had you know 10 features instead of 20 mm. and when they went back to the market trying to sell it they found that nobody asked them about the 10 features that they had cut 
but they all asked them about stuff that they hadn't even thought about mm. so they would have been said that better time spent by getting it out early and knowing what the market wants and then develop and iterate and yeah. be more agile and flexible absolutely so that's it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think that look I mean I think I think with, with businesses you know people say what's well, what you kind of one the one tip I mean there is I don't think there is a one tip I think you have to have balance you know it isn't all about sales it isn't all about tech it isn't all about production it isn't all about supply chain mm. it's actually all about balance and the successful companies will understand where that balance has been tipped and where to put their horsepower in the moment to rebalance the wheel if you like because any good business is going to have a nice balance of sales and production and marketing and product management and mm-hmm. you know good online systems and so on but you know it's actually about agility is very important and balance is very important <coughs> and, you know kind of understanding enough about the market and having a, a, a vision like like the kind of classic strategic management is a fairly simple concept it's just you wonder sometimes why do companies find find it so hard to kind of follow mm-hmm. it and one of the problems is that of course things are changing all the time mm. your competition if you've got a good strategy your competition sees it and maybe can outspend you because mm-hmm. they've got deeper pockets and therefore that changes and yeah so I'm not sure I'm kind of losing no, my, no, losing it's my cool. way a bit with the answer uh, I'm conscious of time as well and I think there's still some some good stuff to, to kind of just touch on is there I suppose in the last number of years maybe just to give a quick overview of some of the Stuff you've been involved in that you can talk about that that have been interesting and any major learnings coming out of that. I know you mentioned already that you're ready and rearing to go again, but I suppose in the last few years, I think just to kind of cover off that phase, is there anything specific that so, stands out? Well, I've I've looked at a lot of I've you know I've looked at um you know some where I'm at the moment is somewhere between you know buying 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 into. Buying a business, buying into a business, or starting from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been looking, like my background is instrumentation and device networks and all that kind of stuff, and so obviously I've been looking a lot at, um, I've been looking at internet of things. Um, I don't like the phrase, yeah, uh, it kind of annoys me, but... I think it's going to be huge and very disruptive, but I also think it's you know very very early days. I mean, I've, I've you know I've been looking to buy bits of kit, and it's very hard to buy bits of kit that are genuinely IoT enabled because there's a real problem with you know devi- like my 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 own sort of background expertise if you like would draw me to the so-called edge of the network, the devices and the sensors and so on. Mm. And there's a lot of development at the cloud side, and all the major tech companies have offerings there. But there's there's still a just a complete well, kind of free for all out at the, send the data back at the edge. You know, yeah, yeah. there's no sta- I mean, people will say there are standards. Yeah, there are, but there's about you know five million standards. And right. So once you, if you have more than a dozen standards, you don't have any standard. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of jockeying for position. A lot of seen seen a lot of this stuff going on in the industrial. Um, devices in the 90s I suppose before mm. it really started in earnest even in the mobile space I guess yeah. back, you know mobile what, there was a, a number of different standards I yeah think, before and, and, and that's still 
and and there isn't just one no right. there's you know the kind of quad band phones or whatever yeah, there's four yeah. four different significance i don't know cellular so well but yeah. um i think uh, i think the problem i think it's very early days so i don't know where exactly that's going to bring me I, I i think embedded systems are going to be very important i think embedded systems engineering is going to become you know like that was a really cool thing back in the day and then it got kind of very unfashionable but i actually think it's going to go back and i actually think looking at it that a lot of the skills are very old school skills you know mm-hmm. um i think that um on that i think that you know obviously power consumption at the device level is going to be a real inhibiting factor so therefore batteries tight you know batteries and tight coding mm. and you know you're not going to be coding from big you know cloud based engines with you know a thousand lines of code in the device when mm. you know I don't know 50 would do so I think I think you're going to get a certain amount of you know that kind of old school minimal engineering at, at device level to to help, you know, because obviously if you're running 50 lines of code, you'll use less energy than if you're running a thousand lines of code mm-hmm. at the risk of stating the obvious. But I still, you know, the business cases, the use cases are still kind of few and far between. I think there's a huge amount of hype mm. um, and not a lot of enlightenment about it. But it's an area I'm very interested in. Mm. Um, you know, I've done some turnarounds as well. That's a, that's an area I'm looking at too. Um, like I think there's a lot of companies it's kind of a I suppose an area I'd have a certain amount of affinity for which is you know struggling companies and I don't you know they needn't be in financial you don't have to be in financial trouble to be a struggling company but a lot of companies kind of get you know to 10 employees and can't get or to get to 40 and can't get beyond it or get to 100 and can't get beyond it or get to the edge of the island of Ireland and can't really get beyond it Mm. I think there's a lot of those companies that could do with help, but then there's a lot of agencies out there that purport to help them. But I don't know. There's a lot. You know, there's a big consulting industry out there, and I'm not so sure how much help a lot of it is to to companies. But mm. you know, at some point over the next six months, I hope to kind of fix on on what it is I'm going to be doing next. You know, but I'm definitely going to be I'm definitely going to be doing something. I hope. Um, you know, next time out to put to better use my learning. Mm-hmm. You know, I said to you earlier on that entrepreneurs seem to me anyway to make kind of better use of their mistakes. I hope that's true because I've made enough of them to, you know, that I should. I've made that many of them that I should get very fast this time out. You know, yeah. I do think I'd be, uh, you know, I, if I was to be reflective about my own career as an entrepreneur, I'd say. You know, I got a lot of things right, but indecision has been a big problem. You know, I've indecision, indecision, in, indecision. In, in I, from making decisions, just slowness. I've, to, I've to known. Control. You know, if I was to look back and say, I've known really what to do several months before I actually did it. A lot of the time, your gut was telling you it. It's just you didn't yeah. pull the trigger on it. Yeah. It? yeah, 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 yeyeah. Um, yeah, you know, because. Part of the problem, I think, when like we raised money in two thousand and one two to support the software strategy, mm. and when you raise external equity, you know they were all pretty much all friends and family, so I'd right. known them all. But that kind of adds its own burden, you know. Yeah. 
And I felt when we got into trouble then we effectively the money we raised was for the software product business and then the software product business really failed and we didn't lose the company mm. but we lost that part of the business and then we had to go back and we lost a lot of money, we spent a lot of money. Mm. When we when we when we lost that part of the business obviously that investment was all gone, you know. Mm. Um, and so we had to kind of go and make that money back, which we which we eventually did, and it took a lot of work and a lot of resilience and a lot of, um, you know, probably fairly you know good qualities, uh, you know, noble qualities if you like to kind of go back and face into that. And we did eventually get, you know, to make the money back and to give the shareholders a some kind of a a, a reasonable exit at the end of it all. Mm. But um, I think that's. A- so one of the questions I was, you know, I'll wrap up with a few questions just to get f- rapid answers out right. of them. But one, one of them was, you know, what advice would you give your, your younger self? One of those classical questions. I think that's something you've just answered maybe there about yeah. more around decision making. I think, I think indecision. Yeah, absolutely. Trust your gut more. Yeah, like I, I'm not a big kind of gut feel kind mm-hmm. of guy, if you like, but... I do believe that a lot of the time your gut is... If you're a thinker, which I am, I think a lot mm. of time your gut is telling you something that you actually... Sometimes I, I've known something was right or wrong, but wouldn't have been able to articulate why. But usually afterwards I could I could get there. So I'd say trust your gut more mm. and be more decisive. Because even if you're wrong, mm. it's better to do 10 decisions and get seven of them, seven of them right mm. than to think about... 10 decisions and not make any of them you know mm. now obviously within reason because the three that you get wrong could be ones that close down the business yeah so if you're going to make mistakes make sure you make them on the small thing you don't get the big things wrong you know yeah. do you have any fears because it sounds like through the journey you've went through you've taken on challenges from yeah. travelling from different you know, different roles yeah. and faced up those is there anything has fear ever got in your way of anything yeah it has often gotten my way the fear of like there were times that I should have been I should have bet made different bets but I was afraid of losing the business I was looking I gave a lot of time looking over my shoulder mm-hmm. um, and I like I, I could I know this is supposed to be a short answer but I'd, I'd have a I'd have a I'd have a, a lot of I'd have given a lot of thought to this idea of entrepreneurs like you know I have I have a family I have a mortgage I'm not a very big one anymore Thank, thankfully that's all under control because of whatever but you know when I was in the height of you know the thing I took out a second and a third mortgage and mm. leveraged up to the hilt and you know and and wouldn't have understood how to maybe extract money out of the company because uh, there, there, there are ways that I'd understand now that are perfectly fair and reasonable to all concerned, you know, to mm. all the shareholders. I wouldn't have known how to go about doing that. But I do think that entrepreneurs being kind of saddled under a major mortgage or, you know, your 30s and 40s are very cash-hungry time of your life. You know, as you get older, it's, it's different because your kids are grown up and you've, you know, you're, you've no mortgage and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And and the fear I would have had, you asked the question, did I have fears? The fear I always had was, Jesus, am I going to... I came close a couple of times to losing everything. Mm-hmm. And so then you say, Jesus, I need to be conservative about this. I need to not lose. And in my fear of not losing, I probably lost a much bigger opportunity. 
I should have traveled more, I should have been more aggressive in developing the business, I think we could have actually developed a much finer business in hindsight, mm. had it been more decisive and had it been more courageous. You know, and I, I did shy back from some tough decisions at times, and part of it is this kind of thing of looking over your shoulder, because it's never just you, it's your family, and, mm. you know, you know, the mortgage is still there. Well, it'd be better if you had no mortgage. Mm. It'd be better if you had kind of made your not. And some friends of mine have been very successful in business. They've taken, like I have a friend, a very successful guy, and he says, I like to keep the cash tail ringing. It's the phrase he uses. And he's done that for himself and for a number of people over the years. And I actually think that if you get to a certain point where, like I wouldn't be very materialistic or money-driven, mm -hmm. but there's a comfort in knowing that you don't have a mortgage and that mm. your kid's education is paid for and that X, Y, and Z. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you can actually do that early rather than waiting, waiting out for a big payday, I, that's another one of my one percenters, you know, to entrepreneurs mm. is to borrow my friend's phrase, keep the cash tail ringing mm. because it just liberates you, you know. It's like I, I said to him one time, you know, he, about involved in you know something else and I said it doesn't really matter to you if it fails and he said well yes it fucking does matter it matters very much and I said well I don't mean it like that yeah, yeah. I mean if it fails your kids won't go in uneducated you won't be thrown out you know you, yeah, all yeah, those yeah. things are and so it's more and so therefore, as opposed to the consequences of everything no, but, uh, the point I was making was it's actually your freedom to make decisions purely based on the business merits alone makes you a better business leader now mm -hmm. than when you're afraid, when you're looking over, some, some guys just don't have that, yeah. that I, but I would have had it, you know, you're looking over your shoulder and you're afraid and that's, it liberates you to some extent, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm... No, it does, but I, and again, like, I think it's, every time I ask a question, I have another one that crops up, but I think it's the, uh, when you make that decision or when you're racked by fear, you're, you're very much making or not making decisions based on emotion Yeah. a lot of the time. So if yes, you were more data-driven, maybe you could say, well, the, the numbers stack up here, yeah. the, the decision makes itself. If the, if you So it's, it's maybe trying to find that balance as well, you know? But, yeah. but it sounds like if you, you're starting again and you're in a position where maybe that fear might be reduced based on experience and circumstances that you think you'd be well, less I, fearful I, than I have more financial ballast a lot than I ever had before any point in my life. Um, and I also have a lot more experience. But if I was to be honest with you about my fear, my fear is like I'm in my 50s now. I know how hard I used to work back then. Mm. But sometimes ridiculously so. Mm. Sometimes to the point where I you know, did all sorts of stuff that I would never do again. Mm. And that, and that was kind of an experience. But my fear is, am I going to find that energy that I had back then mm. or some equivalent to, you know, that's, again, look, if I'm being, if, if we're being honest, we're being honest I'd have to say that's my, uh, that's my fear in any time. And, uh, it's not a huge fear, but sometimes yeah. I just think, Jesus, am I still going, am I going to be able to find it when I, when I uh, go looking for it, you know? Mm. I think just from what I'm hearing though I think you'll always probably find a fear to attach on to because you think a lot and there's probably an element of that part of you that would almost drive you on but it sounds like at any point yeah. in your life I would you know, be similar that you'd have self-doubt about something and don't 
That's a very you know, uh, interesting and thought-provoking comment. Yeah. You could probably, you can, you can, maybe when you're walking the dog tomorrow, you can have a think about yeah. that one a little bit more. I'll text you. Okay. You could text me tomorrow. Just a couple of like kind of lighter ones um, at the end to maybe give people something to take away or uh, you know around books you read, documentaries you like. Any any book you might recommend for folks to to pick up that could make them even more better than they already have been after listening to, to, a, to uh, two and a half hours. Books. Yeah. I, I've read a lot of business books over the years. One I read recently that I made me laugh out loud was, uh, in fact, it's there, Ben Horowitz. It's the hard thing about hard things. Oh, yes, I've heard of it, yeah. Um, I enjoyed that. A lot of his anecdotes are very funny. You know, it's like uh, anybody who's built a business and has gone through muddling through. Mm. Probably some of what I've said here probably comes straight out of the book. I also read something recently that I that I um, a book called Talent Is Overrated. Mm. Again, a kind of a thought provoking. It challenged a lot of my view. Well, challenged a lot of my long held views, long held beliefs about about talent um, other books that I read down through the years uh, I, I'm, I'm a huge believer in the Steve Blank movement on you know um, customer development I think the logic that's there like he, he does a there's a there's a YouTube uh, video about an hour and 20 of him on um, in, he's a Stanford lecturer and I think he has a brilliantly insightful um, uh, view of, of startups and the logic behind them. It's a kind of an engineer's view of a startup, but you know, a process. Now, I, I think you can go too far with it, but uh, I, I would any entrepreneur, I would say, you know, read Steve Blank or you know, get a, if you're if you're too lazy to read him, um, All the, do the good. do the do the Stanford lecture and. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's lots of other books. I mm. can't, they just, for cool. instance, there's three. One other question to be, when you think about, you know, your successes, or if you think about somebody you would have looked up to that was successful, is there anyone specific that jumps into mind? Had you role models, not necessarily that you worked directly with, but just even in the, the, the wider world that you, you mean, inspired you by? You mean back in the day or in more recent times? Both, even if, if there was, you know, ones that... Yeah, I mean, I suppose I'd have different... Um, back in the day... Back in the day, the guys in Kent's, you know, the guys in Kent's, the guys that led Kent's, that were, um, you know, a lot of them were tradesmen. Mm. Had no real formal, um, I'd say formal educated. No third level formal. A lot of them left school. Probably did their intercert and left school. Went and did their junior and senior trades and went down up through. And a lot of those guys, I found them really, like they really had fine minds. Very very bright guys. The the, the kind of kept the sort of cadre of people that led Kent's in my day. You know, Carney and Kelly and White and and those guys. Um, more recent times, um, I mean, Ray Nolan is a guy a lot of people talk about. He's a, I, I've gotten to know him, and he, he's a very uh, instinctive um, and very successful business man. Very logical in the way he, um, in, in my view, anyway, logical and instinctive. They're not. They're not mutually exclusive. 
Um, you give a bit more detail, just uh, just in case people are listening. Ray, so Ray Ray founded um, Web Reservations Hostel World. Oh yeah, um, and he I, I actually met him years and years ago. He came in to sell uh, something to us in my early days in Lekin. He claims he doesn't remember it at all because we didn't end up buying from him. But mm-hmm. he he you know he's done multiple um, his company. Then he was selling uh, timesheet software. Um, it was a long time ago, you know, but he didn't have a web uh, product at the time, and we had people out in different sites, and it was kind of the early days of the web. But mm. so he he went on to become very much the kind of uh, the web guy for Ireland, uh, by far the most successful. You know, he's he's invested, he's led, he's you know done a whole bunch of different stuff. He's mm. always kind of interesting to meet. Mm. Um, you know, I'm a fan of, uh, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but I'm a fan of Branson, you know. Mm-hmm. Something I read about him was, and excuse the profanity, but it's a quotation that, you know... We've uh, been pretty good with low amounts of profanity, just, yeah, so it's okay. Yeah, as you know, I, I'm actually very well behaved, but very. He's, uh, he was quoted as saying, you know, he just... Um, you know, he just tries stuff, and if it doesn't work, he doesn't give a fuck. He just goes and opens another shop somewhere, you know, and... Mm-hmm. Um, he's interesting because you know he's dyslexic mm. uh, or has some form of dyslexia and, mm. and actually very interesting fact is that nearly 50% of self-made millionaires in the UK this is a, a, a stat from a, a number, mm. you know, it's only in, in recent times nearly 50% of the self-made millionaires in the UK are dyslexic. Yeah, I read that. Right. Very interesting. Obviously, they develop something else about... I mean, business isn't about, mm. you know, having a top-drawer kind of academic intellect. Mm-hmm. There's a different... There well, are different creativity flourishes more, I think, in people than are. There's a social intellect that they develop and an emotional intellect that, that mm. they develop because... They have to find a way around, and I, mean, I suppose that's the theory. You know, it's fairly obvious. But, mm. but I suppose, yeah. Why do Irish people do so well in business overseas, especially? Mm. Like, if you look at the Irish diaspora, mm-hmm. it's extraordinary the level of success that we've had. Mm. You know, in the States and the UK, even in spite of the stuff I was talking about yeah. earlier, the troubles and everything in Australia. You know, any of the Ingl- Anglophone world, the Irish mm. way above and beyond our, our numbers. And somebody said to me, a neighbour of mine said, she said, her theory on why Irish people were so successful was because we come from big families, you know, and you kind of learn very early on that you have to share or you have to figure out a way of getting out. You don't get everything you want. Mm. And you have to figure out a way of negotiating very early on. I suppose an interesting an interesting kind of point of view mm. it's a good question actually that I might re-ask in, in other interviews just to get a perspective of people you know others would, might say that we've never invaded anybody or we've never annoyed anybody enough that <laughs> we're always true, welcoming yeah. and that That's we don't true. have any innate enemies that those kids when they're being brought up have not looked upon us as yeah. have done doing anything wrong. I I've been from Longford when I moved to Cork. I kind of came down with that sort of uh, mentality. People were very f- friendly and welcoming because we've never been really yeah. uh, 
the top GA team are, <laughs> yeah. are not kind of rubbing up against the, no, the yeah, well, that I'm, from, I'm from Tipperary there's a certain amount of arrogance and, and some only some of it well well deserved but um, I think John I think we've covered a lot um, probably more than you bargained for well around. never I didn't know what to bargain for but that was the good thing about it because it's you know it's important to, to take our time and go through it um, I think it's been really I've learned a lot from it selfishly that's what I'm doing this for if other people get something out of it that'd be great and when I put this out there is there um, well one I guess a couple of last things how could people get in touch with you if they wanted to reach out is there do you want to share an email address or a a Twitter account so that if they after hearing your you know potential plans to come back onto the the market uh, they may want to talk with you or you know platform for you to, to kind of reach them um, you can reach me at the Adalgo A-D-A-L-G-O is the name of the company um, well it's it's you know it's a it's it's the com- it's kind of my um, probably no more than a flag of convenience it's, it's a small consulting company that I have that I kind of do my own stuff through yeah uh, whatever whatever I Whatever I do next will be probably in a different vehicle, but that you'll always reach That's me through. Point. Yeah, through Adalgo. And I'll I'll uh, typically for John dot Wall at Adalgo dot com is my email address. John Wall at com. Cool. I put that in uh, in the links on the yeah, uh, yeah. on the podcast uh, page. Um, last reflections. Any piece of advice you'd like to give uh, anyone listening, just to kind of one piece that you might have taken on board that stuck with you that you'd like to share or anything jump into mind kind of in summary I'd say pick what you want to be famous for obviously you don't have to be famous but pick what you you know pick what you'd like your company to be famous for be prepared to change your mind because you might be wrong would that mean you'd have to have a plan B or just well you you don't have to have a plan I think agility I wouldn't again I wouldn't the, the the phrase wouldn't have been around in my in my you know but you know pick what you want to be famous for have the courage to change your mind if you find it's wrong and go and pick the next thing and go back to the Richard Branson thing of you know zero um, that's yeah. you know he doesn't care he just starts again mm-hmm. if it fails and but I think I think you know I have a, a huge uh, thing about integrity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the real test of integrity is not putting it on a mission statement or in your mission and value, vision and values and all that kind of stuff, but it's what you do when nobody's watching. And I know that's a bit of a cliche, but what do you do when it's going to cost you money? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you ever cross, you know, you, you, can, you can cross the line one direction but it's very hard to cross the line coming back mm-hmm. you can go from being straight to being crooked but it's very difficult to come back the other way mm-hmm. and you know I just think that this most people are decent and I mean, you know asking me for the piece of advice and I'm mm-hmm. actually this isn't the, isn't the kind of piece of advice let me go back and see if I can kind of say that quickly the first thing I'd say is in business you need to figure on being famous for something. Why will your company be famous? Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to have the courage to change your mind if you find out that it's not really going to make you that famous and figure something else that you want to be famous and keep trying until you find the thing that really does drive your company to growth. Mm-hmm. And be honest and decent. Have integrity. Mm-hmm. Because 
most people are innately decent and honourable, but circumstances sometimes drag them to somewhere that they should never have gone, and they almost always they either become, you know, fully properly crooked or they regret it for the rest of their lives. You know, mm-hmm. I think I think that's really important. You know, mm. perfect. So, so with that, we'll. We'll wrap it up. Wrap it that. up. Um, John, thanks a million for taking the time out. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed going through the journey yourself a little bit there. Um, yeah, no, it was, it was interesting. It was good to reflect on things. You asked me a few questions there that I need to think about on my wall. Yeah, absolutely. For the next month. Well, I'll share, I'll share this with you uh, so you can have a listen to it and you know at least then have a, a record of it. But thanks very much. You're one of the first uh, guests that I've had and uh, I would feel it's probably one of the longer ones that I'll have for a while but we might okay. break it into might put this into two parts to get people coming honest. back <laughs> it might be a trilogy but um, thanks a million I uh, sure. appreciate it John have a, have a good evening yeah thank you very thanks. much thanks hey folks you got to the end of another show thank you for persisting I hope you enjoyed it as much as the others so I'm just going to put a quick shout out for feedback you can get in touch with me through the site you can get in touch through Instagram Twitter Facebook it's all on the robofthegreen.ie site and you can take it from there also I'd love if you listen to on iTunes leave a comment give us a score out of five on the stars that are so much commonplace these days i would really appreciate that if you did it whether it's good or bad i can certainly take that we'll we'll make some improvements as we go and yeah i'll keep it short i hope you enjoyed and i look forward to having you back for some more one percent better podcasts in the future thank you and good luck